Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The story is a familiar one. In 1882, the British invaded Egypt to secure payment on the country's crippling foreign debts and quash the movement for fiscal sovereignty and constitutional rule that had formed under the Egyptian military officer Ahmed Odabi Pasha. The invasion would lead to Egypt's occupation in the form of a sort of veiled protectorate until 1914 began what would become the First World War. Thereafter, the British continued to use Egypt as its stomping ground, a condition that continued despite Egyptian anti-colonial demonstrations and resistance, and continued until the declaration of Egyptian independence in 1922. It wouldn't be until 1956 that the last British troops left Egypt. But let's hone in on the years surrounding 1882, the beginning of the British occupation. The common sense in the critical American academy for I guess, half a century, has been that decades of occupation were a logical extension of Egypt's integration into an increasingly Western-dominated global economy. From the 1850s onward, the story goes, Egypt's economy was the example par excellence of third world dependency, the essence of which was reliance on the export of a primary commodity. In Egypt's case, that primary commodity had been raw cotton. In the name of the free global market, the British ensured that more and more of the country's land would be devoted to supplying cotton to England's industrial mills. In other words, the occupation rested on and reinforced notions of liberal universalism that, in actuality, served as alibis for imperial expansion. As a complement to this narrative, a generation or two of critical social historians within Egypt have emphasized that following the occupation, a sellout landed elite acted as complicit to Britain's larger objectives of expanding foreign land ownership. Now, surely aspects of this story do contain important truths, right? But it still doesn't explain certain things. For instance, British administrators and political economists weren't particularly interested in the landed elite at least not as much as they were in the small landholding Egyptian peasant, or fellah. For another, their very hopes for the fellah made Egypt a target for the relocation of foreign financial capital from Europe, a relocation that led to a decade-long financial boom. With few exceptions, historians of modern Egypt haven't made sense of these confounding variables. Until now. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, a channel at the New Books Network. My name is Nancy Ko, and I am absolutely delighted to welcome our guest for today, whose new book, Egypt's Occupation, Colonial Economism, and the Crisis of Capitalism, just out from Stanford University Press, has been widely regarded as perhaps the most important scholarly book about modern Egypt to come out, like, ever. I'm only slightly exaggerating there. Aaron Jakes is an assistant professor of history at the New School, where he is also the co-director of the Capitalism Studies program. And in Egypt's occupation, he tells, 
for the first time, the story of the turn of the century financial boom and the early 20th century crisis that ensued. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Thanks so much, Nancy. I'm so grateful to be here and so happy to be talking about the book with you. Thanks, Aaron. So when I was reading your book, what struck me was that here, you're not just critiquing the British political economists and administrators who formed the conceptual edifice of British colonialism in Egypt, but also the social historians of Egypt themselves. I was wondering, given the vast amount of scholarship that you're working both with and against, how did you get here? How did you get to realizing that something about these uh, critical histories um, was amiss? The project really began as an effort to kind of write an environmental history around the narrative that you laid out. So I was particularly interested as a person who had been interested in environmental politics in thinking about the kinds of ecological problems uh, and social problems that ensued from large-scale cotton cultivation, not just in, in Egypt, but particularly across large parts of India as well. And so initially, I was thinking of, of the project as an investigation of ecological problems and transformations ensuing from cotton cultivation and the new forms of knowledge that were produced within this larger British imperial space to, to deal with them. Um, and I began with a particular interest in, in a bunch of the material that ended up in the seventh chapter of the book about these campaigns to conscript huge numbers of children to try to eradicate the populations of caterpillars that would devour large portions of the cotton crop every year starting in the early 1900s. Um, and so one point of entry to this other account actually had to do with making sense of that story of ecological degradation. And what I started to realize was that small farmers were cropping their land in cotton more intensively and more frequently than their wealthy landholding neighbors. And this was often described as a consequence of some form of backward, unscientific, greedy, uh, fatalistic behavior. But with some help from some really great earlier work by Alan Richards, I started to think about how this differential pattern of cropping might have something to do with the ways in which landholders of different sizes of farms were borrowing money. And so I started to become interested in the operation of financial markets originally because I wanted to understand how mechanisms of credit were manifesting in these new kinds of ecological problems that were starting to menace the cotton crop. So I was thinking about credit and learning about how the credit markets for farmers worked in Egypt, um, but I also started graduate school in 2007. And I was struck in that moment by the fact that all around me, suddenly people were much more inclined to be thinking about the role of finance in the world that we inhabit. And the pervasiveness of concerns about finance and financialization in the present, I think, attuned me in a different way to how similarly pervasive those concerns were in the kinds of sources that I was looking at in not initially archives, but in published sources about this period of Egyptian history that were available to me in New York. And so I started to think about how the conventional narrative that we have might have been conditioned by concerns of the historical moment in which it was produced, namely one in which many of the critical historians writing in both English and Arabic uh, about colonial rule 
were centrally preoccupied with questions of underdevelopment, with Egypt's failure to industrialize, and with the extreme forms of class inequality that the Egyptian government, after the Free Officers' Revolt, at least um, publicly claimed to be attempting to combat. So the, the second answer is that actually living through a, another moment of widespread preoccupation with finance sort of started to attune me to a different set of, of dynamics. And then lastly, and this has more to do with the kind of um, second part of the narrative that you were describing, the, the one which places overwhelming emphasis on a kind of alliance of convenience between the British and the large landholding class. Once I started doing um, initial research in the British archives, I started to notice that a version of what had usually been described as a critical history of British rule was already there in the archives. In other words, the colonial sources contained their own critiques of the large landholding class and were actually generating large amounts of data about differing conditions for different social classes in the countryside. And so I started to think about how it might be the case that um, what had presented itself as a critique of colonial rule was in fact reproducing certain kinds of logics that were already inside the archive. And so I started to become more interested in what the colonial state's own critical analysis of the class structure of rural society in Egypt looked like when they arrived. And, and one of the things that was particularly striking about that was an argument that both politically and economically, the power of that dominant large landholding class had actually been responsible for the problems that, according to the British, made their presence in the country necessary. So on the one hand, they suggested that uh, the Khedivit, the, the um, regime of the Ottoman vice regency and its wealthy retainers, had basically been manipulating the institutions of the state toward their own personal gain in ways that were restricting access to irrigation water, adequate forms of transportation, consistent forms of taxation and rights to land in ways that made it much harder for the smallholding majority of rural society to be producing as much and as well as they could have. Um, and politically, this also meant that the British saw a certain kind of opportunity, for reasons we'll get to in a minute, in trying to confer unprecedented material prosperity upon that large class of smallholders whom they understood to have been systematically disadvantaged by the regime that they had arrived putatively to correct. So what you're pointing to is the ways in which a self-regardedly critical historiography is sort of unwittingly reproducing um, the discursive field within which British colonial administrators and also probably political economists are functioning within. I wanted to take a couple of steps back because, you know, the 19th century, this is also a point in time when discourse around political economy and its critique is becoming legible in the first place. And one thing that um, surprised me about your book within the first few pages is that when we think about issues of the political and the economic and Egypt, of course, we think of the groundbreaking work of, of Timothy Mitchell. And one of the things that he argues is that the economy as a concept did not really arise and function the way that we, we think of it functioning until much later, until really the mid 20th century. So can you clarify what you mean by the economic sphere and the political sphere as it arises at this point in time, 
and what role it kind of ended up playing in your eventual argument. The, the first thing to say is that as somebody who had the opportunity to study with Timothy Mitchell when he was still at NYU, and, and I've now spent years of my life thinking with his incredibly generative arguments, his argument about the economy and the historicity of this couplet of a definite article with economy, I think is even more important now than it may have been, or is at least important now for different reasons than it was at the moment that he he published it in different iterations starting in, in the late 1990s. It's all the more easy to understand the political importance of thinking critically about where this category comes from after years of a um, deranged American president who has been increasingly willing to sacrifice human life to this bizarre abstraction. Now, the, the distinction that I'm interested in making is that, as I understand him, Mitchell's version of the history of the economy is one that's focused on particular sets of calculative practices that make it possible to think about the economy as an object of governance that exists within the bounded territory of the nation state. So we can think here about the emergence of things like gross domestic product and national income accounting that make it possible to chart the performance of something called the economy year by year for each country in the world. And what I'm suggesting is that well before that happened, there was already a widespread understanding that the world of social phenomena could be meaningfully sorted out into different categories of stuff deemed economic and political. The beginning of the introduction gives a kind of quick sketch of a history of this much earlier separation as the consequence of a widening field of social life that was mediated by uh, generalized commodity exchange and by the sale of labor power that made it increasingly possible for people to think about the existence of a separate domain of social life that seemed to operate according to um, weirdly automatic operations of the sort that the new discourse of political economy, particularly in the 18th century, started to try to make sense of with new abstract categories like value and rent and price. And the reason why it's important for the arguments of the book to recognize that that separation long preceded the existence of the economy, as Mitchell has explained it to us, is that without some sense that that separation existed in a meaningful way for people, it's very difficult to understand how and why, not just in Egypt, but in many other parts of the world, questions about the relationship between economic stuff and political stuff preoccupied large numbers of people, political theorists and political economists among them, but also all sorts of other characters. One of the things that I do in the introduction is trace a history of this preoccupation through the tradition of Anglophone liberal thought to show that many of the leading figures of classical political economy who were also writing tracts of political theory were in various ways trying to work out how the domain that they were analyzing through the categories of political economy might relate to other concerns of theirs about what it meant to govern a polity well, who ought to be qualified to participate in the political life of that polity, 
and how the actions of political subjects might or might not be conditioned by their material conditions of existence. Um, so the, the stakes of this relatively mild historical disagreement are that without making it, it's very hard to explain the world of phenomena that are central to the concerns of the book that I wrote, and as I understand it, of this period of Egyptian history. Now, this phrase, uh, colonial economism, is obviously functioning on the etic, uh, not the emic level. Could you talk a little bit about the process via which you got to that phrase um, and why you thought that it was necessary to do so in the first place? Sure. Part, part of my eventual decision to use this edict category came out of a series of frustrations, but also generative meditations on a common problem that I encountered as a graduate student who was starting to become interested in domains of economic life and economic stuff that had for a long time been pretty unpopular as topics of inquiry for graduate students in history. Um, and so many times, particularly in the decade between when I started doing my graduate research and when I started teaching, when I would describe on the one hand, my interest in this world of economic phenomena around financialization that the central chapters of the book describe, uh, and my concern to understand what those phenomena might have meant for the politics of colonial rule in Egypt, uh, the quick response from skeptics would be some version of, oh, it sounds like you're making some kind of a base superstructure argument. And so the suggestion there was that, I mean, this, this is a quick and dirty way of suggesting that what I was doing was some form of vulgar Marxist analysis that asking questions about the relationship between the economic and the political was always necessarily some version of that, and that the problem that was being named by reference to the base superstructure metaphor was an edict problem, was a, was a problem of, of analysis existing outside the object of historical inquiry. And so part of what started to interest me and what I was finding in the archives was that what those interlocutors were suggesting was my problem as a befuddled graduate student were already there in the in the archival sources, um, and uh, and this really leaped out at me the first time, and it turned out not to be the only time that I encountered one of the colonial officials that I was studying using a base superstructure metaphor to make claims about the ways in which economic life in Egypt would produce the kinds of political effects that the colonial state was hoping to generate. And so in that moment, it struck me that this resonance between a version of this problem that existed inside the history that I was studying and the methodological concerns about how to deal with that as a historian um, might merit drawing attention to that connection by using one of the terms that is often employed to describe that problem methodologically, namely economism, to start thinking about the problem as it existed historically. In other words, I was interested in suggesting that what is often framed as a methodological or a philosophical problem that people studying capitalism need to make sense of uh, actually exists inside the history of capitalism itself. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll answer a different version of your question about the United States. Um, I, I also started to think more, particularly in the last few years, 
about how another way in which it seemed important to draw attention to this problem was that it is still quite common in the United States to suggest that people who make claims about the political impact of economic forces belong necessarily to some tradition of left politics or or Marxism, as it is poorly understood by most people in the United States. Um, And that notion has actually made it very easy to miss all the ways in which strong claims about economic determination are actually pervasive in many forms of political discourse in the United States and other parts of the world in ways that have absolutely nothing to do with the Marxist tradition. So a key distinction that I'm hoping to flag with the category colonial economism is that for at least many versions of a a strong Marxist economism, which I might also disagree with, um, claims about economic determination have a universalist character. So the suggestion there is that for people everywhere, their material conditions of life have uh, a kind of strong bearing on other aspects of social existence. Now, one might disagree with those claims for all sorts of reasons, but in the 19th century, when people started using Marx's writings to think through these questions. For many of the the writers that were doing this most systematically, they understood what what they sometimes called economic determinism in a kind of happy affirmative way as a form of rejoinder to forms of either racial or theological ideas about determination. So we, we might think here about the communard uh, Paul Lafargue, who wrote a book in the late 19th century called The Economic Determinism of Marx. And, and he was not using this as a criticism of Marxism, but actually as a way of thinking about how notions about economic determination might open the way to a, a kind of universalism. Colonial economism is doing something very different. So here, the suggestion is that only certain populations of people are really determined in the other aspects of their social existence by by economic forces, and that this is a consequence of some form of defective subjectivity, whether as a consequence of racial difference or cultural problems. Um, The idea as it existed in, in Egypt is that most Egyptians as racially distinctive human subjects were capable of no more and no less than a bare recognition of their own economic interests. So this meant on the one hand that they could under an improved government be uh, safely and productively incorporated into the transactions of modern commercial society, but that they would be so narrowly responsive to their own economic gain that on the one hand, economic improvement would translate quite directly into forms of political legitimacy, and that they were incapable of reasoning beyond their own individual self-interest in a way that was necessary to the forms of prospective collective deliberation that according to uh, the colonial officials that were making these claims was the kind of real stuff of politics. And so there we, you know, we might think about a kind of resonance between that kind of claim and both the forms of really crude economistic argument that have variously been trotted out to explain in broad brushstrokes the phenomenon of support for a figure like Donald Trump 
in the United States. So all the all the arguments about the white working class that appeared particularly early in 2017, and the ways in which certain kinds of responses to uh, that understanding of of what's happening in American politics right now have led to notions that the way to respond is basically to hammer away at bread and butter economic policies as if most people in the United States or other parts of the world are incapable of caring about or thinking about other things. So there there was a way in which, in this sense, my thinking about what was happening in Egypt was shaped by concerns that were emanating out of the political moment that we have been living through. So I wanted to zoom in a little bit on a couple of things. And one of them is the ways in which, while this story you tell is specifically Egyptian story, it also seems to be one about the British Empire more generally. In 1861, J.S. Mill writes, uh, and he had had a career in the political department of the East India Company. So he writes in Uh, considerations on representative government, that there are conditions of society in which a vigorous despotism is in itself the best mode of government for training the people to render them capable of a higher civilization. And it's it's on this basis that he's advocating for the development of India's so-called national character. And then a couple of decades later, as you argue, from 1882 to 1914, across those three decades, the British occupation is then in Egypt defined by this very, this discourse of colonial economism, as you describe. Could you talk a little bit about the sort of temporality of colonial economism as one that defers sovereignty, be it in India or in Egypt? On a second level, I wanted to talk about what made colonial economism a specifically um, alluring discourse upon which British colonial officials depended in the Egyptian case. You you open chapter one with this funny little, what seems like a minor philological point about the word istiamad. And it's a word that, you know, if anyone, you know, hears that word today, they immediately think, oh, that means colonialism. Um, but in the 19th century Egyptian context, of course, istiamad had already meant something like infrastructural development. And it points to this kind of awkward fact that uh, there already was infrastructural development in Egypt prior to the British invasion. And this seems to sort of be inconvenient to claims about Oriental despotism. So in both the sort of international, the, the sort of global British empire context, as well as the specifically Egyptian one, what made this sort of discourse of colonial economism so important to British functioning. I think one place to start is to think a little bit about what the moment at the end of the 19th century when the British occupation began looked like at an imperial scale. And crucial here is the kind of mounting anxiety around the apparent breakdown of liberal reformist modes of colonial governance that had been popular, particularly in British India, for much of the earlier part of the 19th century, uh, and that then seemed to face a kind of crisis first in the eruption of the 1857 revolt, and then subsequently in phenomena like the the Deccan riots, uh, where large numbers uh, of peasants in the Deccan um, started to mass themselves and attack the homes and in some cases persons of their creditors. And so there there was this growing concern 
that colonial subjects in places like India and subsequently Egypt might be far less amenable to the kinds of universalist liberal reform that had energized the colonial project in that earlier moment of the 19th century, and that this this might require new forms of knowledge production and and new modes of governance. And so we can think about a kind of, um, if not a shift, a, a mounting tension between an older liberal variant of colonialism and the emergence of a new conservative school exemplified by a figure like Henry Maine and his many followers and acolytes, particularly in parts of India like the, the Punjab. And, and Maine um, notably does not in his writings retreat altogether from the the kind of affirmation of the achievements of modern commercial society that existed in his eyes in places like England and the United States. In other words, he still thinks that forms of representative government are great. He's perfectly happy to have kind of uh, robust, vigorous commercial life in those places. But the suggestion is that there may very well be lots of places in the world for whom these ways of living are not at all well suited. And so the problems that had emerged for colonial rule in India in this interpretation were the the consequence of an, an effort to too rapidly transform a society that was not amenable to those kinds of transformations. And so he started to advocate for a new kind of ethnographic mode of colonial governance that would, in fact, seek to identify and then protect forms of custom, forms of traditional practice that should not be disruptive and therefore needed to be preserved by the colonial state. And the colonial state would then function as a kind of interface between those traditional communities and societies uh, and the kind of wider world at large. One of the interesting things about the historiography of the British occupation is that in various moments, scholars who are aware of these wider debates have described the British occupation as both an instance of the colonial career of liberal uh, universalism in the first version of things, and as one of the first places where this new mode of conservatism was being enacted. Um, And one way of explaining that is that those accounts alight upon kind of different aspects of this relationship that was being worked out through the discourse of colonial economism between the economic and the political. Another way of putting this is that the logic of the occupation in Egypt was that liberal political economy could still apply in a place like Egypt, but liberal political theory could not. And so, you know, we we might think about how and why this happened in Egypt in the moment that it did as a consequence of the sort of generally unsettled and uncertain character of colonial political thought in this moment, and the possibility of treating different sites within the empire as laboratories for uh, working out what were at that moment understood to be unsettled questions. And so it's, it's striking in this regard that, again, the language of the colony as a laboratory is not an edict language. It's actually everywhere in the colonial sources themselves. Lord Cromer in particular very frequently described the various policies that he advocated as experiments. And the suggestion there is that 
these policies could yield important information for answering some of these larger questions about how what he called the subject races of the world uh, could or should be governed. Now, the turn toward this particular variant of colonial discourse was also in many ways overdetermined by the conditions of the occupation. It is worth acknowledging that this is a regime that comes to power first and foremost with a mandate to stabilize payments on Egypt's foreign debt. So whatever else they were doing, they were going to be focused on some form of economic development that was adequate to the project of servicing Egypt's foreign debt payments. But there's also a way, as you're suggesting, in which the sort of weird character of the occupation as a a kind of permanently unsettled form of colonial rule, where the possibility of its termination is repeatedly held out and where it needs to prove itself publicly, both in Egypt and abroad, because of its putatively temporary uncertain status, ends up meaning that the measures of improvement that this form of colonial rule is able to deliver become quite central to how it operates. And so if if we understand there to be a, a kind of basic political problem in the fact that this is not a regime that can claim to be delivering all the goodies of modern life to a backward society, because in fact, there had been this aggressively modernizing regime in Egypt since the early 19th century, then uh, a different kind of claim is necessary. And, And that claim is about the sort of proper and adequate use of the institutions and practices of modernity. The suggestion being that the difference between British rule and the so-called despotism of the the Khedives will actually be recognizable in the the forms of material improvement that British rule can deliver in comparison to what had preceded it. That's fascinating. And so, of course, you know, not every British colonial administrator is going to agree with every other British colonial official, but nevertheless, they're all kind of cohering around this sort of um, colonial economism. As you write, Lord Cromer in particular would diagnose these sort of these three evil seas of, you know, corruption, corbage, and corvée that were a part of not just evil despotism, but also this sort of supposedly destructive political order that Egypt would find itself without the benefit of, of British rule. Can you talk a little bit about what then the British sought to replace that with. As you were saying earlier, since at least the 1950s, historians have suggested that um, British officials aimed to cultivate the support of Egypt's large landlords as the willing intermediaries of colonial exploitation. But you're arguing that the peasant smallholder actually becomes seen as the so-called, you know, worthy beneficiary of British colonial politics. How how, How does that actually play out? Okay, great. I just want to um, flag something that you just mentioned that is quite important to think about, which is that I am not suggesting, and I think it would be very difficult to make this claim, that all of the British officials that were working in Egypt actually thought the same thing and agreed with each other. There are other traditions of critical scholarship on colonial rule in Egypt and many other parts of the world that demonstrate the the actual incoherence of many forms of colonial rule by, in particular, piecing apart the kinds of disagreements that existed between colonial officials themselves. 
And in practice, that was certainly true in Egypt. And it's very easy to identify all sorts of moments of tension between various characters and what they thought. Um, but what is particularly striking and important here is that um, Cromer managed to exercise incredibly strict con control over the public messaging of the regime that he was charged to oversee. And this meant that there was an overwhelming coherence to the kinds of public statements that the British occupation made about itself, both in Egypt and abroad, that meant that the version of colonial rule and the version of the occupation that other actors in the world were responding to was overwhelmingly the one that had been meticulously curated by Cromer through his strict control over this form of messaging. In other words, there was a sufficient coherence to the kinds of claims that were being made uh, about what the British were doing and why, that those were the claims that uh, particularly the multiple generations of anti-colonial thinkers and activists that I'm interested in other parts of the book uh, were responding to, that they could actually identify those claims and saw them as problems of thought that they needed to, uh, to work through. In terms of what this actually meant for the practices of the occupation, we can think about this on multiple registers. So on the one hand, the country had gone through an economic crisis. Uh, there's a, a debilitating augmentation of public debt that eventually became unsustainable by 1876. And so the British arrive and they need to start generating uh, more revenue for the state. And... Um, uh, in credit to the old narrative about cotton, their understanding of how to do this is centrally concerned with producing more and more cotton for export to generate more and more revenue for the state that can then be used to repay those debts. A first difference between my version of things and the older version that you were describing is that the British very early on suggested that the linchpin of this productive boost that would make the economic project of the occupation succeed would be this large smallholding peasantry that had been stifled in its productivity by the inequities and injustices of uh, so-called chetivial despotism. So because the large landholding class had uh, supposedly monopolized access to all of the necessary resources for farming cotton productively, um, many of the early policies that the British adopted, they understood at least to be efforts to um, kind of equalize opportunity in the countryside for landowners of different sizes of farms to be farming as much cotton as productively as they could. So uh, they focused initially on the improvement of irrigation infrastructures. They actually weren't very good at equalizing flows of water at the level of individual farms, but there was uh, a kind of effort to begin by evening supplies of water to different provinces and then uh, managing more and more carefully how water was circulating within the provinces. The idea being that it would be harder and harder for the wealthiest landowners to monopolize access to water. Um, they were acutely aware of the fact that the system of land classifications and the system of taxation that went with those land classifications meant that 
oftentimes the wealthiest landowners in the country were paying the lightest rates of taxation, even if uh, they happened to own some of the best farmland in the country. So there was an idea that a more rational distribution of the tax burden would incentivize farmers of different sizes to invest in the improvement in their land because they would actually retain a larger proportion of uh, the gains of those investments and improvements. Um, And uh, crucially for the story of financialization, they held that smallholders were rationally capable of dealing with farm credit and particularly with mortgages as a form of foreign capital. In other words, the idea was that whereas Certainly in India and and other places, there were concerns that if you loaned uh, a farmer a bunch of money, that the farmer would go off and spend that money on lavish extravagances of various kinds, elaborate parties, weddings for their children, these sorts of things. The idea here was that improved credit could, in fact, translate meaningfully into improvements to the farm and that therefore taking on more debt would be advantageous to these farmers because it would allow them to generate even more profit on their farms. So that's sort of the economic side of the story. The other side of the coin is that the British were quite skeptical of various forms of local deliberation and particularly systems of elections that existed within villages for the selection of um, village headmen, uh, within craft guilds for the selection of their sheikhs, their, their leadership. And so the idea that Egyptians were broadly incapable of these larger forms of, of public deliberation that were the necessary stuff of politics led the British, starting in the middle of the 1890s, to systematically abolish these forms of local elections that had existed with the idea of removing Egyptians from the kind of participatory apparatus of the state and of politics. And so the idea was that this would enable a more efficient operation of the machinery of the state in service of economic gain in a way that would translate into rising levels of public approval from a public that was really only responsive to uh, its economic interests. It's an insidious logic, this sort of distinction between British justice on the one hand um, and Oriental despotism on the other. I wanted to shift a bit to um, how this is looking from the point of view of various different um, sectors of Egyptian society. So you begin chapter two with Mohammed Rushdie, who was at this point in time a spy assessing the economic condition of the countryside in 1894, after 12 years of British occupation of this ilk. And you say what he sees absolutely enrages him. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how critiques of colonial economism looked um, from the point of view of Egyptians? You seem to have actually a pretty ambivalent take on um, on, on what that critique could do. So the first thing to note here is that those critiques were a moving target um, because the relationship between this broadly coherent set of claims that the British were making about what they were doing and the conditions that their regime appeared to be delivering kept changing. So in other words, the, the kind of social conditions 
that surrounded a figure like Mohammad Rushdie in the middle of the 1890s were different from those that preoccupied the generation of nationalist journalists that that I write about in later chapters in the, in the early 1900s. Um, so Rushdie is is writing in 1894 at the beginning of that chapter about a moment in which Egypt had actually suffered a kind of s- small scale depression because a very large crop of cotton in the United States that year had depressed global cotton prices. This was a a figure who had actually worked as the overseer on a large cotton farm in the Nile Delta before joining the service of the the young Khedive Abbas Hanni II as a spy. Um, And he had quite an incisive analysis of the ways in which Egypt's growing dependence on cotton cultivation was leading to the kind of growing precarity of the livelihoods of farmers in the countryside who were subject to the fluctuations of cotton prices. He had a sense that patterns of landholding were becoming increasingly unequal. And so so one thing that's striking about his writings is that there is already in them a kind of sketch of a story that looks very much like the kinds of dependency theory narratives that would be produced later in the 1960s. But crucially, at at this point, he still has a pretty dismal view of what the British have accomplished and is, uh, alongside the other figures that are are working on behalf of the Khedive, um, producing a a critique that is conservative in the sense that it is retrospective to the possible achievements of the Khedivate. In other words, the figures who go to work as spies and opponents of the British in the 1890s, when an opposition really starts to fo- form in an organized way, were in many cases bureaucrats and figures who had been working within the state that the the Khedives and their retainers had been building for decades. And they were quite proud of the achievements of that state building project. And what they see uh, in the 1890s is a state apparatus that is increasingly overrun by people who are appointed by the British because they will be reliably loyal to the British, who are otherwise using their offices in all sorts of venal, corrupt, disturbing ways. And it's worth bearing in mind that uh, these spies were writing reports to a sovereign who was at this point 17 or 18 years old, and I think we might see in the the very um, vivid narrative style of the reports that they were writing an effort to engage him and to convince him of their position, which was that the presence of the British in the country was an overwhelmingly malign force that was kind of tearing apart the fabric of uh, a rightly constituted society. And so um, they they write these incredibly lurid accounts of rural officials who are taking bribes, spend much of their time gambling when they should in fact be doing their jobs, uh, commit acts of sexual violence of every imaginable sort, um, are uh, distorting the, the institutions of the judicial system in ways that uh, mean that people cannot seek redress for various grievances that they have. Uh, and so this early version of things is one that's really kind of concerned with 
how the British themselves and the supporters that they have appointed are the wrong kinds of people to be governing the country and are leading to a kind of moral collapse uh, of Egyptian society as well. A decade later, the colonial development project seems to be doing much better. Egypt was by this point the object of this massive wave of foreign financial investment. Land values were rising, cotton yields had been improving, and Egypt had gained the global reputation of a kind of uh, El Dorado where money would just uh, multiply automatically. Um, Other states around the world began to study Egypt as a potential model case for a more progressive form of colonial rule. So the regime of, um, or sorry, the regime, government of Teddy Roosevelt in the United States became quite interested in Egypt as a potential model for what they might do in the Philippines. Um, And critics of British rule in that moment had to contend with the apparent resonance between an official discourse that claimed that uh, what what British rule would do was to deliver overwhelming economic improvement and a set of economic indicators that were starting to suggest that that might be what was actually happening. And so in that moment in the early 1900s, as uh, the Egyptian press was expanding and becoming more diverse, there were really rich and vibrant debates between both the various newspapers that self-identified as patriotic or or nationalist and those that were more sympathetic to the occupation. There were debates both about um, what the adequate measures of economic improvement might look like. In other words, there's an increasingly detailed analysis of the kinds of economic phenomena that were being adduced as evidence of British success. Uh, And some of the more critical journals started to develop alternative accounts of the kinds of economic transformations that were taking place that were focused on the the potential ephemerality of financial gains, new forms of unevenness that were being exacerbated by financialized forms of wealth, the possibility that this was a bubble type uh, of economic growth that might lead to a crisis. So on the one hand, uh, there's there's a kind of critical political economy angle that that started to appear in these papers, um, and there was a growing concern to kind of think through what it might mean to articulate a a different set of claims about what political legitimacy could consist of, other than simply delivering material goodies and economic growth. In other words, under conditions in which the occupation appeared to be succeeding by its own terms, many of these nationalist journalists started to think through what a kind of non-economistic account of politics might look like. As you alluded to earlier, um, what makes Britain's veiled protectorate peculiar is not so much that it's a target for European investment, but rather that this investment takes the form of of banks making loans directly to Egyptians themselves. And so we've been discussing here um, the sort of discourse circulating amongst uh, the Khedive's spies and within these journals. I was wondering alongside that, if you could talk a little bit about what this process looks like for peasants. Um, Did they use similar language about the occupation? What did their uh, uh, discourse look like? 
So the process of investment directly in colonial subjects is best represented by this new institution, the Agricultural Bank of Egypt, which takes off initially as part of another privately owned British bank that is misleadingly named the National Bank of Egypt. And that happens in 1898, and then it, it breaks off in, in 1902. Uh, and the idea here is that foreign investors could be incentivized to invest in mortgage loans to smallholding peasants if a bank of this kind were given some special concessions to lower both the risk of making these kinds of loans and the cost of doing so. So on the risk side, the British adopt a modified form of the kind of guarantee structure that had been used to finance many of the railways in India earlier in the 19th century. The idea here is that investment instruments, shares and bonds, initially in the railways and in this case in the bank, would receive a guaranteed return at a particular interest rate, regardless of the performance of the underlying business. And that guarantee would be secured against the tax receipts of, of the government. So in this instance, investors in the shares of the agricultural bank would receive a minimum guaranteed return, regardless of whether peasants actually succeeded in paying back the loans that they were taking from the agricultural bank or not. Uh, and on the other side, on the cost of doing business side, rather than need to set up a whole network of rural branches, which would be incredibly complicated and very costly, the agricultural bank was allowed to use the existing network of government tax collectors to service its debts rather than employ its own people to do so. So this this dramatically cuts down on the cost of making lots and lots of small loans to farmers uh, all over the place. Um, and, uh, and setting up that apparatus and making the case for it had uh, entailed conducting a bunch of um, massive studies that generated huge amounts of additional data about the value of land, about the burden of existing mortgage debt on that land. And that also ended up creating a, a cohort of English-speaking British officials who had experience valuing land, assessing the viability of loans against uh, farms of different sizes. And so what ended up happening was that as this agricultural bank was getting going, and it was incredibly successful in its early years, it managed to attract lots and lots of new borrowers, who in many cases saw something appealing in the possibility of borrowing money at rates of interest considerably lower than those they were getting from, from the village moneylenders. So on the one hand, the agricultural bank is expanding, but all around it are a whole bunch of other new banks that partly because of the existence of the agricultural bank could not compete for loans to those smallholding peasants because they did not enjoy the same kinds of, of concessions and were therefore much more wary of doing so. And so al although the occupation kind of undertook to start channeling more foreign investment in farm loans to smallholders, the overall pattern of financialization was one in which most of the foreign investment that came into the country, attracted partly by the ability to make new kinds of calculations about the viability of those loans, uh, enabled by the data that had been produced to make the case for the agricultural bank, 
those other new banks direct their investments overwhelmingly in loans to the largest landowners in the country. And so what ended up happening by the early 1900s was a kind of intensifying stratification of credit markets where interest rates to the wealthiest landowners in the country fell much lower than they did for poorer farmers. And this meant that the, the borrowing powers of the large landholding class were actually radically expanded um, by a process that arguably began with a set of efforts to make it relatively easier for their smallholding counterparts to, to borrow money. And what started to happen as things eventually begin to go bad uh, is that, to answer your question, yes, like peasants did in many cases petition around problems they were having with the agricultural bank. And the, the kind of sad irony of this story was that at least in many of those petitions that I read, there was an understanding that because this was an institution that had government backing, they believed that it would behave more leniently in its dealings with its clients than you know, the local money lenders that they were uh, familiar with. And I'm jumping ahead here a bit, but in the wake of the massive financial crisis that happened in 1907, when loans of many sorts started to go bad, those farmers actually found that the agricultural bank was much quicker to foreclose and much more stringent in its enforcement of its debts than the banks that had been making loans to the wealthiest landowners in the country. Um, And this was both because those other banks very quickly made the calculation that they effectively couldn't afford to foreclose uh, on their clients because the farms that they were lending against were so large that they couldn't necessarily resell them in a moment in which land markets had basically frozen up. And the agricultural bank, on the other hand, was dealing in properties that were small enough that they could still flip them relatively easily. And so there's real pathos in the kinds of petitions that these farmers were writing to the bank and to other parts of the government, basically saying, look, like we, we understood this as an institution that was supposed to be set up to help us. That, that was what you claimed publicly. Uh, and now you have become this kind of merciless institution that is just foreclosing on you know, tens of thousands of farms. It seems that at a certain point in time, and I'm, I'm thinking about the period of the explosive economic growth in the early 1900s that precedes uh, devastating financial crisis. It seems like it's actually much more difficult in a way for Egyptians to argue for Egyptian sovereignty in the light of British colonial rule, right? Like it's easy enough to say British colonial rule is bad. These peasants are in debt. Um, But if Egypt was experiencing explosive economic growth in the terms of British colonial economism itself, how is it that then the sort of anti-colonial thinkers that you were referring to earlier were then able to articulate a way of, if not defending sovereign rights against the British, then at least, you know, separating the question of sovereign rights from the question of the material condition of the country. In other words, in to what extent um, do you find that that group of writers um, and thinkers found themselves complicit in the very discursive structures that the British were sort of diagnosing them with. I'll answer this by way of a kind of short biography of one of my favorite characters that I encountered in the course of doing this research. He is a relatively 
lesser known figure in this period of Egyptian history, uh, but immensely important in ways that I think should be uh, recognized differently. This is a, a journalist named Ahmed Helmi. He was raised by his uncle in Alexandria. His uncle was an employee in the public works department. And it seems that uh, young Ahmed Helmi learned to read basically from pieces of government paperwork that his uncle would bring home to teach him to read with. Uh, he was living in Alexandria in the early uh, years of the economic boom and went to work for uh, a French company, partly as a way of teaching himself to read and write in French, and then eventually went to work for the Ministry of Finance. And so had developed uh, a kind of practical understanding of political economy by the early 1900s, at which point he became a co-editor with Mustafa Kamil of El Liwet, which, which was certainly by the second half of the first decade of the 20th century, the most important nationalist newspaper in the country. And in 1905, at the height of the boom, uh, Helmi writes this uh, really striking column in El Liwet, uh, entitled Kalam al-Dhahabi, Gilded Speech. And what he means by this is that he's noticed that the British are so consistent in their public declarations about the kind of wealth that they've conferred on the country that it's as if uh, their words are, are plated in gold. Um, and at that stage, he was trying to address that problem through a kind of comparison. So, so in that particular article, he basically says, look, um, yes, the country has grown wealthy. Isn't it peculiar then that in the face of all of this wealth, this government has done so few of the things that the governments of other wealthy countries in the world have managed to do? We have a woefully underdeveloped education system. People are, are you know, not enjoying the fruits of this kind of wealth in the form of rising levels of social improvement. Um, and he also had all sorts of interesting kind of insider accounts of varieties of corruption that were, were taking place, um, did some interesting reporting on the ways in which British officials in the Ministry of Public Works would effectively use insider information about the quality of the Nile flood each year to um, manipulate cotton futures markets to their own gain. So there are kind of multiple angles there. Uh, but the moment that that Ahmed Halmi becomes particularly important is as the journalist who basically breaks the story of the Dinshue incident, which is widely understood as the kind of major catalytic event in the emergence of Egyptian nationalism as a kind of coherent widespread phenomenon. Um, the beginning of the incident involves a group of British soldiers in the Nile Delta province of Minufea, uh, who had supposedly been invited to hunt pigeons by the, the mayor of the village of Dinshue in the area. The pigeons in question were being raised by the peasants in the village as food. They're not wild pigeons. This had been a, a longstanding problem. Uh, the, the soldiers show up in the uh, in the summer heat in June to hunt the pigeons. The villagers get very upset. They're also worried uh, about the fact that stray gunfire from these hunting soldiers might start the grain that they were threshing on fire. And so they try to stop them. An altercation ensues. And one of the British soldiers is wounded and along with his companion, like flees the village and dies of heat stroke on the, on the road as they're going to summon reinforcements. Um, 
And the British basically contrived at this moment to activate a law that had been passed in 1895, stipulating that acts of aggression against the army of occupation could be tried in a special tribunal, not the normal Egyptian uh, court system, and that these tribunals would use different procedures and have the power to enact much stricter punishments than a normal court, uh, including the death penalty. And so this special tribunal is convened. And in a matter of two weeks, they convict many of the villagers of a uh, premeditated conspiracy to murder British soldiers. Four of them are hanged and several dozen more were subjected to public whipping and, uh, and various other horrible punishments. So immediately after the initial altercation happened, Ahmed Helmi found out about it, hopped on a train, and basically proceeded to write uh, a series of investigative on-the-ground reports about this incident, in which he initially suggested that like the altercation had happened and that what was going on was that there was a terrible misunderstanding by groups of people that could not understand each other, that the villagers may well have been at fault, but that there was no premeditation and that this could easily be handled by ordinary mechanisms of justice. He then returned to Din Shui on the day that the, the sentences were carried out and wrote a minute-by-minute account of the, the proceedings of these executions and public whippings that I think might be um, likened for readers in the moment that it was written in 1906 to something akin to the experience of watching the murder of George Floyd this summer. And, and in fact, I've been collecting descriptions in the autobiographies of like other Egyptians from this period about their experience of reading this article, which describes in minute and really disturbing detail the fact that the British were effectively murdering these villagers in the middle of their own village, in full view of their families. And so there are these horrible moments in this article where uh, Helmi will describe the screaming of the children and wives of these men as they are watching them get hanged like 100 feet from the homes where they had been living. It's a particularly striking comparison given, you know, you write earlier, I think in chapter two, about the ways in which the interior is kind of competing with a British-run police force in trying to clamp down on crime. And so these sort of um, systematic modes of bodily discipline exist alongside, I think, what Shatima Threadcraft calls spectacular death, and that's really striking. Yeah, I mean, and, 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 and Helmi, I mean, I don't think he does this, but it, it's also striking that many of the other journalists that are writing about this use the word irheb, terrorism, to describe it. And what they understand by that is exactly as you're suggesting, that this is a concerted spectacle of violence that is intended to have diffuse political effects. It's not about punishing a particular crime. Uh, and so uh, kind of returning to the, the preoccupation with how to deal with the discourse of colonial economism, Helmi in particular clearly perceived that the, the obscene violence of this act posed a really serious problem for a colonial regime that purported to have won the broad approval of the Egyptian public and to operate mainly 
through mechanisms of consent generated by those forms of economic improvement. And so from this perspective, what was particularly important about the Din Shui incident in the moment that it happened was precisely all of the ways in which it allowed for a counter narrative to emerge that basically cracked apart the logic of a regime that that seemed to be able to um, claim that it's it, it was succeeding by its own kind of economistic metrics of improvement. And so it, at this point, it became possible to start thinking about the occupation as a form of foreign rule that was ultimately underpinned by really extreme forms uh, of violence. And so um, it, it became transformative and kind of cracking open um, the array of different possibilities for critiquing and, and, and responding to colonial rule at a point at which, by the economic metrics, things still seem to be going quite well. Right. I mean, I think what's interesting here is that, in a sense, um, you describe the ways in which various British colonial financial policies unleashed dynamics that British officials themselves were not able to necessarily anticipate and, and weren't able to control. There's something in, in British officials' own notions of the lack of the political in putatively materially-minded colonial subjects that seems to be part of the sort of self-defeating nature of colonial violence. Can you reflect a little bit on the role of anticipation or lack thereof in what would eventually become Egyptian claims for independence from the perspective of the British? think that this is a, a really sharp observation you're making and and um, it also merits um, some comment on something that's in the book but I think might have been emphasized more which is of course the British also understand uh, Egyptian society to be a society mostly of of Muslims and so lurking always behind the economistic claims is, uh, what they regard to be the other possibility. So it's not just that economic improvement will lead to kind of variable levels of public approval, but that the alternative to public approval as they understand it is the latent threat of demagogues and ne'er-do-wells of various kinds stoking the latent fanaticism of a population of, of Muslims. And so I think we might consider the kind of excessive, spectacular deployment of these kinds of acts of violence as also a, an effect of this logic that basically w- once the, the possibility of a kind of stable and mechanistic relationship between economic growth and consent has broken down, their own theories about this society point toward the, the kind of spectacular deployment of violence as uh, as the only other viable alternative. And, and just returning to our friend Ahmed Hilmi for, for a moment again, the Dinshuay incident is not the only such moment in the early 1900s. Um, as the nationalist movement started to kind of gain legs by the end of the first decade of the 1900s and to be capable of mobilizing mass protests, of backing strikes, of helping with the establishment of all sorts of new political associations. At a certain point, uh, the British decided to stage a more comprehensive crackdown, one of the features of which was 
uh, a reimposition of really extreme forms of press censorship. Uh, and Helmi, as a committed longtime journalist, marched at the forefront of a huge demonstration at the end of March of 1909 against these new press censorship laws and was imprisoned during the crackdown and subsequently went on, I I don't mention this in the book, but it's just another interesting detail of his biography, uh, went on to write this um, uh, tract on uh, torture and, and kind of the use of violence in the criminal justice system uh, in Egypt in in a kind of global comparative perspective. And so he was also a, a figure who who I think particularly in the aftermath of Dinshue was quite interested in in thinking about um the the kind of relationship between uh on the one hand these economistic logics and and on the other the alacrity with which this colonial regime would make recourse to really extreme use of force when things did not go the way that they had expected that they should. I think that's fascinating. And I also think that the the writings of Ahmed Hilmi, as you're explaining them to us, also helps to perhaps commensurate what I perceived when I came into your book as a kind of uh, contradiction between, on the one hand, colonial economism in the ways that you describe it, the ways that the British conceived of Egyptians as narrowly materially interested with what seems like a very different colonial discourse, one that's been enlightened by scholars like Anne Stoller, um, like Judith Serkis, who are all trying to get out of the shadow of Norbert Elias and his book, The Civilizing Process, which reflected long-standing attitudes within colonial discourse, not that the colonial subject is excessively rational or material, but rather that the colonial subject is excessively emotional. I wonder to what extent the representation of the colonial subject as as a merely economically materially interested one, and then the seemingly opposite notion of the colonial subject as an emotional one are really two sides of the, of the same coin here, right? That in a sense, both end up justifying the legitimate use of violence or force on the part of colonial officials eventually. Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 these are always possibilities that exist within colonial discourse. And, um, you know, another thing that I hope to draw attention to in the book is that um, one can, at a certain level of generality, acknowledge uh, the pervasiveness of othering discourses in the operation of colonial regimes. And at the same time, recognize a more particular historicity to the specific kinds of othering claims that were made as a historical feature of colonial formations. So part of what what interested me in the period covered by the the last two or three chapters of the book is that as, as I see things, there was actually a, a kind of concerted and noticeable shift in the kinds of claims that were being made about Egyptians by the British after, say, 1910 than those that they had been making for basically three decades be- before that. Um, and we we might, in this regard, think about colonial discourse 
not simply as a way of justifying relations of power wherever they existed, but actually as a form of moving knowledge production that that was in this instance kind of shot through by like invidious notions about racial taxonomies. But what starts to happen in this moment when things don't work out the way that the British had anticipated was that their own recourse to a language of experiment uh, enabled a suggestion that that what was uh, wrong was not colonial rule or the policies that it had been implementing, but the underlying set of assumptions that they had been testing out about uh, Egyptians as racially distinctive human subjects. And so th- there was a kind of noticeable shift toward something that looked much more like the forms of colonial conservatism that I described earlier that had been implemented in places like the Punjab since the late 19th century. I- in Egypt, the British kind of moved toward that outlook quite noticeably round about 1910. And so, you know, if if we are then a bit more attuned to the variability of possible claims that could be made about colonial subjects by colonial officials, then it becomes possible to think about the sorts of phenomena that, that Judith Serkis and, and my colleague Ann Stoller are writing about as particular instances of or moments within a wider field. And one of the things that that struck me as I became more aware of this shift is that actually, if, if we go back to, to Edward Said's book, Orientalism, some of the earliest instances of Orientalism that he's describing come out of descriptions of Egypt by various British officials. And they look much more like the, the circus Stoller version of things in which Egyptians are understood to be kind of radically, um, radically other. And it's notable that, that almost all of those sources that he's using were produced a- after this shift had taken place in a moment of kind of disillusionment with the more uh, optimistic propositions of uh, of colonial economism. And so, um, I mean, at, at some point I may write something about this. I, I think that there there's a possibility of kind of h- historicizing in a, a slightly more specific way the kinds of Orientalist claims that Said uh, was noticing in those passages as particular to that moment in a in a wider possibility uh, or a wider range of possibilities of of orientalist uh, discourse and and in this regard um, we can also kind of discern later moments of something that looks much more like colonial economism in other uh, settings so it's not that that set of possibilities totally died out as they ceased to have the kind of appeal and purchase for colonial officials in Egypt that they had before 1907 and 1908. That's really great. And I look forward to whatever it is you do end up writing um, in a more fine-grained way about the development of these, these sorts of tropes in time and space. One thing that strikes me, and you talk about this in chapter eight, is that at the same point in time when British colonial officials in their defeated optimism begin to focus on this figure of the indebted peasant, um, Egyptian anti-colonialists begin to use the language of Egyptian nationalism as the most compelling way to resist uh, British colonialism. And I think this is really striking because um, it does seem to elide 
the sort of differentiated ways in which British colonialism impacts different sectors of Egyptian society. And so can you talk a little bit about the language that is used to describe British domination and the way that that feeds into Egyptian anti-colonial discourse and discourse that is trying to perhaps uh, escape the logic of colonial economism? Yeah, and here I, I just want to—I kind of want to step back for a second and 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 flag something about the relationship between the kinds of phenomena that I describe in the sixth chapter, which is one that is full of demonstrations, strikes, new forms of mass mobilization, uh, and the focus of the the eighth and final chapter on um, t- texts that are working out a particular version of of economic nationalism, and. Um, one connection to bear in mind here is that in the wake of this massive financial crisis that had taken place starting in 1907, which the British claimed for a very long time had only affected a kind of narrow stratum of stock speculators and had done little to the underlying prosperity of the country, the, the countervailing argument that had been made in the nationalist press since the spring of 1907 was that this was affecting uh, most or all of Egyptian society, that it was a generalized crisis. And the the stakes of that disagreement, of course, were that if this was a generalized crisis, then it would no longer be possible for the British to claim that they had delivered prosperity. In fact, they they were then delivering the, the kind of preconditions for an extreme form of economic upheaval that the country had never experienced beforehand. So as that narrative of generalized crisis gained purchase, various political possibilities opened up. So on the one hand, um, the notion that Egyptians of differing social classes or from all walks of life in different parts of the country were suffering through similar upheaval and similar kinds of uh, problems could point toward interesting new forms of class solidarity that had not existed beforehand. And I think that we can see this practically um, in a really dramatic shift in the attitudes of some of the leading figures of the country's main nationalist organizations, Hezbollah Oman and Hezbollah Waltani, in their support for varieties of labor militancy that they had been very wary of quite publicly just a few years beforehand. And so suddenly you have these lawyers and journalists who are actively helping to organize workers, writing enthusiastically in support of the strikes that they're staging, and thinking through in really interesting ways the the relationship between class inequalities within countries uh, and forms of global um, unevenness or inequality between countries that that also have a kind of classed structure. So another way of thinking about this is that like they they are making the same kind of mental leap from class as a social category within countries to a kind of form of class relation on an international scale that becomes the the logical basis for something like world systems analysis. So so that version of things has at least a potentially radicalizing um, logic to it that does actually start to unfold for a while. So there really is quite a remarkable um, energetic eruption of all sorts of new political activism in 1908, 1909, 1910, um, that both for the participants in that activism and for a set of increasingly worried British officials 
seemed to be pointing toward the possibility of some kind of like revolutionary mass anti-colonial movement in a moment when there was a kind of wave of revolutions uh, taking place elsewhere in the world, in Russia, in the Ottoman Empire proper, uh, in Iran. On the other hand, this same idea that crisis conditions had affected Egyptian society as a whole, and that Egypt was increasingly subordinated to foreign capital, also opened the way toward the kind of economic nationalism that I'm describing at the end of the book. And part of what was going on by that moment was that the British had staged this massive coercive crackdown uh, and many of the leading figures of this kind of economic nationalism were were quite wary of the very real stakes of engaging in other more radical forms of political activism when they were being threatened with imprisonment and deportation and, and all sorts of other things. Um, and we might think about the ways in which this other version of things had a greater appeal to, to people many of whom occupied a, a kind of higher class status than the sorts of folks that were engaged in the strikes. Um, but it's also a kind of playing out of the other side of this logic. And so in, in this version of things, the fact that all of Egypt was affected by the malign forces of foreign finance could provide the basis for an idea of national economic improvement in which other sorts of interests and sectoral concerns needed to be subordinated to the kind of primary project of developing national capital, right? So the, the basic idea here um, is that if the, con- if the crisis uh, was the consequence of Egypt's increasing reliance on unreliable flows of foreign investment and foreign finance, um, and that those forms of foreign investment and foreign finance were mechanisms of wealth extraction that led to deductions from national wealth that was actually being produced by the productive activities of Egyptians themselves, then the solution would lie in creating institutions that would territorialize pools of capital, uh, would leave the country thereby less subject to the variability of foreign investment because it would mean that there was national capital to be invested in various enterprises, credit institutions, uh, and that this would over time allow Egyptians to retain more and more of the wealth that they themselves uh, created, and that that uh, increasing economic self-reliance would make Egyptians more free. So that's the kind of positive um, casting of this argument. The other side of the coin is, is that in service of these ideas of national economic development, they would very consistently dismiss um, concerns emanating from other forms of class inequality and other kinds of divisions that existed in Egyptian society as potentially threatening to this larger necessary subordination of all Egyptians to a collective project of national economic improvement. And so we might see this project of economic nationalism as emerging out of a similar set of historical conditions, but pointing in a very different direction than the kind of dynamic activism that had been occurring just a few years beforehand. In other words, the goal here, and I think uh, I think you quote the journalist Abu Bakr Lutfi in saying this, is to preserve the wealth of the country inside the country, 
uh, he and, and those like him were far from being, I don't know, socialists, for instance, right? Um, they've absorbed uh, the terms of capital. So the British occupation itself lasts in various forms until 1956. And, and we can say without painting too broad of strokes that it doesn't really end there, of course, that under what is arguably um, a new American world order, Egypt had a lot to lose in processes of global neoliberalization that particularly impacted uh, Latin America and the Middle East. And to add to that, earlier you briefly mentioned um, the ways in which Teddy Roosevelt's cabinet became quite interested in Egypt as a model for what they would do in the Philippines. Yet we've also sort of been dancing around what analogies between Egypt at that point in time and America today might be. So as a kind of last comment about the book, how has the research that you've done for this book changed your understanding um, of Egyptian society today, um, but also of global capitalism, perhaps even in its domestic American context? Some of my answers to this are, are kind of smaller and more specific. So, I mean, another Another thing that kind of loomed large in my thinking about the, the project, particularly when I was conducting the research for my dissertation, was what this story has actually meant for how the Egyptian state has been organized and has operated ever since, for how people conceive of politics. On the one hand, um, you know, anti-imperialism is a kind of expected normative position to this day. Uh, and yet, while uh, it's very easy to elicit negative responses to, to some notion that the British were in the country and ruled the country, um, the idea that British rule actually affected the country in durable ways is not nearly so widespread as one might think it to be. And so, you know, one of the things that I was interested in doing was to write a history of British rule that might point toward some of these more enduring legacies. Politically, one that is quite striking is the way that the kind of systematic evisceration of local politics remains a structural feature of how subsequent versions of the Egyptian government are organized to this day. So in other words, politics is conceived of overwhelmingly as a concept that operates almost only on a national scale. Uh, and this has something to do with the fact that um, there's there's been very little reinstitution of electoral procedures at kind of lower levels and scales of governance. In terms of thinking about the longer history of capitalism and neoliberalism, it's, it's striking in this regard that um, <laughs> repetitive forgetting of these older histories makes it possible for ideas about micro lending and forms of economic development that again seek to incorporate various sectors of Egyptian society and, and societies elsewhere in the world more thoroughly into the, the transactions of modern financial institutions, that those proposals seem to exist in relation to no awareness of their uh, of their own history, and that we certainly might adopt a considerably more skeptical posture uh, toward the salvific claims that have repeatedly been made about those kinds of innovations if we recognize that, in fact, securing attachments between finance and 
so-called underdeveloped populations has been a kind of signal feature of how capital spreads around the world for a very long time. I've been working closely with another colleague at the New School, Emma Park, who's doing really remarkable work on these new financial technologies that uh, are emerging, uh, particularly in, in sub-Saharan Africa, through the use of mobile phone banking. And, and there are some pretty striking similarities with the kinds of claims that these fintech firms are making about the sorts of improvements to people's lives that they'll be able to offer by providing credit through the technology of the mobile phone and about what kinds of uh, economic subjects people in sub-Saharan Africa might be if kind of attached more securely to to networks of, of global finance. And so I mean, I, I think one thing to do with this this kind of history is to insist on uh, historicizing much more actively the problematic sorts of claims that are continuously made in service of extending the reach of global financial institutions into people's livelihoods. That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Aaron. So you've made reference to your work alongside Emma Park in capitalism studies at the New School. Can you talk a little bit about what other projects you have going on these days that are perhaps connected to Egypt's occupation? Sure. So um, I'm working on three things, two of which at least are closely related. So so the first is a co-authored biography about another character in the book whom I don't think we mentioned in this conversation, Abdulaziz Joish. uh, this startling activist, educator, journalist figure who spent some important years of his life in Egypt in the early 1900s and then uh, returned after World War One. Uh, this is a project I'm working on with my colleague Hussein Omar at University College Dublin. And, and we're particularly interested in the work that Joish did over many years of his life to develop a concept of Islamic socialism and, and of thinking about his political activism and his ideas about what modern Islam could be and could do in the world as a kind of road not taken by modern Islamic thought that would subsequently be eclipsed by a figure like Rashid Rida. And and what's interesting here is that Joish, like Rida, is also a a disciple of Muhammad Abdu. And then I am underway with a, a new project that is a kind of long history of the Suez Canal that attempts to use the history of the canal to think historically about the like mutability and politically contested nature of categories like tax, rent, and and profit. And um, one way of describing this that that is kind of directly related to arguments of the first book uh, is that the Middle East is often described as the site of genesis of uh, of frontier state theory, this this set of ideas that uh, states that are able to rely on uh, forms of revenue, not taxation, tend to be less democratic, uh, basically because they do not need to make de- material demands on their populations, and they can, uh, you know, distribute economic goodies willy nilly. Uh, and hopefully after this conversation we've been having, it, it will be fairly obvious that I think at least we, we can read frontier state theory as a kind of latter day iteration of the kind of racialized economism that I am also describing in the book. In other words, implicit in many of these claims is the idea that populations of certain countries are more amenable to being 
bought off by the goodies that their states can uh, provide for them than um, than people elsewhere. And so um, I am interested in using the history of the canal to think about both how messy the kinds of distinctions between what is tax, what is rent, and what is uh, profit on capital actually are if you start paying attention to any of the instances where these distinctions are made, um, and also to, to thinking through a history of how claims on rent generating objects, be they things like the Suez Canal or oil resources, have actually been tied together with struggles for political participation in ways that are much more complicated and hopefully hopeful than mainline frontier state theory would have us uh, believe. Uh, and then the last project, the one that I'm I'm working uh, most closely with Emma on, is um, we received funding from the Mellon Foundation for the next two years to run a Sawyer seminar entitled Currency and Empire, Race, Power, uh, and Monetary Systems. Um, and here we are broadly interested both in thinking about the archives of central banks and and monetary institutions as sites from which to write histories of empire and in bringing a body of work on monetary theory and monetary policy that has existed largely within uh, the discipline of economics into conversation with work on racial capitalism, on the relationship between capitalism and empire that has been more common to other disciplines like uh, history and anthropology. And the link there to uh, to my Suez project is that I'm increasingly interested in the relationship between the, the nationalization of various major assets in Egypt in the 1950s, particularly the Suez Canal, and efforts to de-link the Egyptian pound from the Sterling Zone, which was an immensely complicated and, and drawn out process. So those are the three general things that I'm getting to work on right now. Fabulous. I know we are all eagerly awaiting your book with Hussein Ahmad and your upcoming book, and I know I'm excited to see how this project turns out. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Aaron. And to our listeners, this has been New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm your host, Nancy Coe, and today we've been discussing Aaron Jakes's new book, Egypt's Occupation, Colonial Economism and the Crises of Capitalism. Thanks so much for listening.